Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Paris Anand, Chief Investment Officer for Asia Pacific at Fidelity International. And in this podcast, we're going to be taking a closer look at China's role in the world. In four short decades since China began opening up its economy, ties between the country and the rest of the world have gone from almost nothing to $5 trillion in annual two-way trade. Over this period, China's economy has also grown by nearly 40-fold, while its stock of inbound foreign investments has risen to nearly $2 trillion. And with that supersized growth has come some supersized challenges, including multidimensional policy settings, a global contest for technological dominance, and of course, the battle against climate change. China's role in the world has never been more important nor more complex. And it's hard to overstate the country's impact on global politics, economics, and environmental issues. China's development across all these areas is presenting investors with tremendous opportunities, but also demanding constant and careful attention. So how is China's role in the world changing? And what are its priorities? And how does it want to be seen by its neighbors, rivals, and of course, by global investors? With me today to better understand China's place in the world is Louis Vincent Gav, founder and CEO of GavCal, a leading independent provider of global investment research. Louis, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Paris. Great to catch up. Let's start by looking at economic strategy and what we've seen from uh, China over the course of the recent year relative to what we've seen uh, from the US. The US very much stepping on the gas with respect to fiscal and monetary policy, China doing much less so. Who do you feel is making the right call in this instance? I think that's exactly the right way to frame it. Um, you know, I've, I've been doing this for about 25 years, and this is really the first time in my career that I see such polar opposite policy choices. Um, like you point out, the U.S. is stepping on the gas like never before on the monetary policy side, on the fiscal side, and China clearly isn't. China today is already tightening its monetary policy. Uh, it's tightening its regulatory policy. Uh, it's tightening its fiscal policy. And so we're, as investors, we're in the sort of an uncomfortable situation of confronting having the number one economy in the world step on the gas, the number two economy step on the brakes. And indeed, to your point, it sort of feels like they can't both be right. Given how globally integrated our, our economies are, given the nature of global trade, the five trillion you just highlighted, et cetera, it seems that one of them would be wrong. Um, so either the US is wrong to be stimulating when it has twin deficits that are over 20% of GDP, uh, when it already has nominal GDP growth that's probably double digit right now, um, or China is wrong to tighten given the uncertainties surrounding supply chains everywhere around the world. Um, you ask me who's right and who's wrong. Um, I think that uh, I, I struggle to understand the, why the U.S. should need to stimulate today. Um, basically, the U.S. is more or less replacing every lost dollar of, of COVID by two and a half dollars of stimulus money. I, I think the U.S. is overdoing it. Uh, and the end result of it, uh, I'm a big fan of the, the French economist Jacques Reff, whose core belief is that bad policies tend to be first and foremost paid for by the exchange rate. The exchange rate is already pointing the way. This is the first crisis period in my career where 
the renminbi, instead of flattening or going down during a period of uncertainty, has actually gone up. Um, that, to me, is the start of an important trend. I think we, we live in a world where China is tightening probably because it needs to. The U.S. is easing when it shouldn't. The end result will be a stronger renminbi and a weaker U.S. dollar. I mean, if I, if I go back to the period after the financial crisis and we looked at the level of fiscal stimulus that was undertaken at that point, and to a certain extent, you know, China having a very significant role in pulling the whole global economy out of recession, it clearly doesn't want to play that role in the world right now. I mean, if you look at the, the 14th five-year plan and we look at the growth ambition of single-digit you know, headline growth, if you go back five or 10 years ago, people would have referred to that as a hard landing. So it's quite clear that it's, it's recasting its own role in the context of the global economy. So, you know, what do you think that means and why is that? Well, I think the China of today is already very different uh, from the China of almost 15 years ago. I mean, 2008 was, you know, what is it, 13 years ago. Um, for a start, China is actually a much more urban economy today than than people were expecting just, just a few years ago. The pace of urbanization in the past 15 years has been much, much stronger, as has the pace of aging. Um, these have been the two key trends in China for the, for the past decade, faster aging, faster urbanization. So, you know, I think if you go back to 2008, when 2008 hits, 35 million manufacturing workers lose their jobs. Uh, so if you're a Chinese uh, policymaker, you think, okay, I don't want these unemployed women and men rioting in the streets. Uh, you know, the, the Chinese policymakers, their number one priority is social stability. In any event, you know, you end up with 35 million people unemployed overnight. And yes, China's response at that time is, well, look, we were going to build t all these roads, all these railways, all these canals over the next 10 years. Let's do it over the next two years. Um, so you have a stimulus spending bill in 2008, such as the world has, has seldom seen. Fast forward to today, and, and the nature of this crisis is, of course, very different. This crisis in, in 2020, 2021, isn't really about a collapse in demand, which is what uh, 2008 was. It's really about massive supply chain disruptions. And during this crisis, actually, it so turns out that China is one of the few places where supply chains remain more or less undisturbed. So during this crisis, China's trade surplus actually reaches new highs. You know, in 2020, 2021, Instead of collapsing, China's trade goes through the roof because it's one of the few places still open for business, still open to produce. The unemployment rate doesn't go up. Um, and so, you know, if you're first and foremost in the business of social stability, if that's, you know, if that's your mantra, uh, you don't need to do a big stimulus. You, you know, you don't have a rise in unemployment. You don't, your foreign trade is doing well. Not only that, but the demographic transition you've gone through in the past 15 years means that all of a sudden, you no longer have 20 million people that leave the countryside every year to come into the cities. That was the big challenge back in the early 21st century. Uh, How do you absorb all these Chinese workers, these farmers that come into the towns? This is clearly not the challenge anymore. So, you know, the need to create 20 million jobs a year for farmers no longer is there because China is now 70% urban already and it's aging fast. So, yeah, so I think the you know, the, the needs to stimulate are no longer there. It's, it's interesting coming back on your point about why is the US, though, choosing to undergo such an extensive um, level of stimulus? I mean, arguably, you could say that in the period since the financial crisis, there was 
an underinvestment in physical infrastructure in, in the US. And actually, one of the things that you've seen through COVID, especially for a lot of Western economies, is that their, their institutions and the infrastructure was creaking. They were concerned around hospitalizations. They were concerned around the capacity that they had to, to, to deal with that. And so it may be in the same way that we saw post the financial crisis, where you prepare for the next crisis in a similar way, you almost are thinking about, okay, so we had a stress test of the infrastructure. I need to rebuild and invest in that infrastructure. So a similar um, episode, I'm able to sort of manage that better. So I, I wonder if there is in some ways a kind of, despite the fact that we are living in this environment of accelerating digitization, a greater appreciation for a quality and the degree to which you have a well-invested infrastructure in, in, the, in, in your domestic economy. I wonder if that's part of, of why we're seeing such different policy settings as well. I think for sure. Look, yes, I think that's, that's one logical explanation. But, you know, success has many fathers and you can find lots of, lots of uh, explanations. That's definitely one of them. I, I would say another explanation. I mean, go back to 2008, uh, 2009. And remember back then, the argument of most China bears was that you had all this uncertain political uncertainty in China and that you just couldn't deploy capital there, right? Because, because of this political uncertainty. That was, you know, go back again to 2010, 2011. Uh, that was one big argument. And then what followed in the, in the following years was that we had the Occupy Wall Street movement. We had the Tea Party. We had the election of Donald Trump. We had Brexit. We had the Gilets Jaunes in France. Um, if you were looking for social instability, it turns out that it wasn't in China. The social instability was really in the Western world. Um, post-2008, uh, you had a large, sometimes a majority, but at, at least a significant minority of the population that started to basically say, look, I don't recognize myself in these political choices. And, you know, and this has gone all the way through to right now, you know, the, the riots in the US and the Black Lives Matter movement and et cetera. If you're looking for signs of social instability, uh, they're, they're pretty. I think they're pretty prevalent in the Western world, and so I think if you're a policymaker in, today in the Western world, one clear message you're getting from some of your constituents is, "Hey, I need to be taken care of," um, and yes, uh, I need to have better healthcare. I need to have better uh, infrastructure. I need to, to to have all this. And look, you know, politicians are in the business of getting reelected, right? Um, and if voters are saying, "I want you to spend more money on me," And if at the same time central banks are saying, "Hey, here's a bunch of free money," it's a pretty easy it's a pretty easy decision path. It's like, okay, mm. central bank, you, you want to give me money, and voters, you want me to spend money. Okay, yeah, I can do that. Um, and so, you know, I think I think that's uh, a, a big part uh, of uh, of of the explanation. So, thinking about China's economic strategy and how it may or may not be rebalancing its economy. Fidelity's investment director, Catherine Young, caught up with GavCal's head of research, Arthur Krober. Arthur, thanks so much for joining me today. Now, you've covered a lot of ground when it comes to China's long-term development strategy. The general view is that the country is rebalancing its economy to be more consumption-led. However, you think the investment-led model isn't going away anytime soon. Why is that? Well, I think um, basically the overall view of the Chinese leadership 
is the way economies work is that you make high productivity investments. And then those investments, if they succeed, generate high paying jobs and bring consumption along in their wake. Uh, and so consumption and, and income growth is a consequence of making the right investment decisions. And so they've sustained an investment rate of over 40% of GDP for almost 20 years. Uh, and everything that we can see from the current five-year plan and the long-term development plan suggests that they intend to keep that high rate of investment. But what they want to do is shift more towards high technology intensive investments as opposed to the traditional infrastructure and housing related investments. And again, the idea is the way that you get strong growth in incomes and growth in consumption is picking the right investment targets. I think the second element of this is that the last few years, and the rising tensions with the United States have revealed to them very clearly that China is still very dependent on the United States and United States allies for imports of key technology. And so it is really, really important to them to become much more self-sufficient in uh, crucial technologies such as semiconductors or artificial intelligence or robotics or you name it. And so there is also a, a very strong determination to invest heavily in these sectors just from the standpoint of self-sufficiency and national security. So I think those two concepts go hand in hand. There's a long history though of China investing heavily into infrastructure and housing. Will this continue to be the case? Well, so I think what's interesting is that um, if you look at the data that just came out, came out of the 2020 census, um, what this reveals is that there are actually quite a few more people living in urban areas than we previously thought uh, based on previously available population data. And that helps explain why the property market has been so strong for the last three or four years, even though many analysts, including us, felt that probably we'd reached the peak of, of housing um, uh, construction in China. It turns out that was wrong because we underestimated how many people were in the cities. And then if you do some projections forward, we expect that there will be quite a lot of urban household formation in the coming decade. And so what that means is that housing construction can still play a positive role in Chinese growth for the next decade. But if you look at the contribution that housing and related stuff has been making to GDP growth over the last few years, it has been going down. So we're not at the peak yet, but the contribution is getting smaller and smaller each year. And so what that means is that in order to keep growth going, um, there really is a need to find uh, alternative targets for investment. Um, and I think that's part of what lies behind the push to high technology uh, as the sort of the next frontier in Chinese investment. So this frontier, if we could just explore it a little bit more. So really this emphasis, therefore, on, on hardware and, and semiconductors, as you alluded to earlier. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, in the United States, particularly when we think about technology, the names that come to mind typically are names like Google or Facebook or Amazon, which are essentially software or service related companies, right? Mm -hmm. They're not the producers of the hardware, really. In China, you have a very successful internet economy with names like Alibaba and Tencent and so forth, but they're under the regulatory gun right now because the government sees some of what they're doing as either risky from a financial or social perspective or monopolistic or problematic in some way. So what you see very interestingly is the Chinese government is trying to regulate more strictly the activities of its software and service related tech firms. 
At the same time, it's making massive state-led investments into semiconductors notably, but pretty much anything that is uh, a, a hard technology, if you will. So new materials or new energy vehicles or new energy grid equipment, those kinds of things. And I think this reflects a bias in the Chinese leadership's thinking that at the root of technological progress is advances in hardware. And so that's where they really want to place their bets. And that's also where they are very dependent on imports from the US. So again, this uh, feeds into the self-sufficiency concern. Alibaba and Tencent really don't depend on imported anything, but uh, a lot of the basic hardware industries do. So that's where they need to put their uh, shoulders to the wheel. Arthur Krober there talking to Catherine Young. So, Louis, I want to move on the conversation a little bit from talking about China's role vis a vis the US and actually talking about China's role with respect to the deeper integration or regionalization um, of the global economy, and particularly in, with respect to Asia. And again, this is something that you've written um, uh, a lot about. And I, I guess I wanted to sort of ask the question about what role does China see itself playing in Asian integration? And related to that, how do you think it is perceived by other developing economies and developed economies across the region? The first thing we have to acknowledge is that Xi Jinping is a deeply transformational president for China. Um, Since the Ming Dynasty, basically every ruler in China came in thinking, I have so many troubles at home, so many things to handle at home. They didn't really bother with foreign relations. You know, it was... Everything was always inward focus. Um, Xi Jinping completely changed the mold. You know, he he comes in and his first big speech is about the Belt and Road and the Silk Road Fund and the One Belt One Road and all all these things. Uh, Xi Jinping is really the first Chinese leader in hundreds of years to want to project China's power abroad. You know, when you listen to Xi Jinping, that's really what he talks about. You know, the One Belt One Road, the trade routes, the frankly, all these deals he signs in Africa, uh, Eastern Europe and elsewhere, it's really an attempt to basically tie in large parts of the Pan-Asian, African, Eastern European map into China's economic orbit. Um, Now, to your question, and how do people react to that? I would say some like it, some don't. The bottom line, though, you know, for, for Xi Jinping in the 21st century, all roads must lead to Beijing. And so this this reshuffles uh, a lot of existing relationships. People such as kind of Parag Khanna have written about the idea that looking at sort of China today is quite comparable to you know what we saw from the U.S. after the Second World War and the creation of uh, the World Bank and the influence that it wanted to play uh, globally, but that over time it was you know the convener of a lot of this um, economic strategy but was didn't didn't entirely have it all its own way so these were still institutions that that as much kind of hold the, the the US to account and i think that there is a perspective that you know even when we look at things like belt and road uh, and we look at this this overall integration of asia as a region that it has the capacity to both benefit from the rise of China, but also the capacity given its own alignments and own economic developments to ensure that that in a way it, it, it acts as a bit of a counterbalance. Do you think that that is a 
a realistic comparison or do you think it's it is a mischaracterization no i think it's a very and i don't think it's a mischaracterization at all i think it's a very realistic assessment i think in fact what china is doing is sort of copying and reproducing a lot of the institutions that were built post world war 2 so you know you, you had the imf you create the uh, asian infrastructure investment bank you had you know the marshall plan you create the silk road fund um, you know, there's there's a lot of parallels you can draw. I think China is, you know, looking, okay, the U.S. did it this way, so we're, we're going to do it that way. So, yeah, no, I think the, I think it's a very fair characterization, what you just described. So let's, let's kind of then think about, you know, the, the role of capital markets, because clearly another big change that we've seen over the last few years is an acceleration in the deregulation of, of the capital markets. And again, the reason that I'm asking this question is because, it adds another layer on how does China want to be seen in the world. So if it wants to have uh, attract greater foreign capital flows to its rapidly growing domestic equity and fixed income markets, despite everything else that we've kind of described around um, where there are points of tension or, or, or friction, it clearly is not only uh, opening up those markets, but also aligning to standards that global investors feel more more comfortable with. So again, it's a, a different image now that it's or a different role that it's playing in the world with respect to you know, or that it needs to play with respect to the opening up of its capital markets. Well, so yeah, look, the first point is you know if you're going to build all these roads to trade with Kazakhstan and you know these ports to trade with Angola or Zambia and all these things. And if that trade is still denominated in U.S. dollars, then at the end of the day, you remain a tributary to the U.S. Treasury. Uh, your trade remains dependent on the willingness and ability of American banks to fund that trade. And, and perhaps worse, it remains dependent on the U.S. Treasury continuing to agree uh, for you to do that trade. Yeah, you have no choice but to internationalize the renminbi. This is, you know, today's single biggest weakness, if you're China remains the dependency on the U.S. dollar. You know, from, from one day to the next, the U.S. could absolutely... If the U.S. says to, to everyone in the world, you can't trade in U.S. dollar with China, the Chinese economy, you know... Now, you could say this, this would be the U.S. cutting its nose to spite its face because that would trigger a global depression. Uh, and for sure it would. Uh, but if you're China, you have to think, okay, if things go really bad, could we go there? So... No, I think China has no choice at this point but to internationalize the renminbi. Of course, it started doing so uh, using Hong Kong. Um, in that regards, I think people underestimate the luck that, that China's had. Because, you know, emerging markets, you know, you go through a growth phase and, and then typically, you know, you reach, you reach middle income, at which point you need a deep liquid financial market to take you to the next stage. And... China was amazingly lucky in that they inherited one from the English. And, you know, the English are pretty good at building financial centers. Uh, it is one of their, their value added for the world. They do do that well. Um, and so, you know, they inherited one from the English uh, right at the right time in their phase of development. But, uh, you know, initially having Hong Kong was the perfect tool to allow this internationalization of the renminbi. And I think, you know, the, the big development of the coming year or two will be this internationalization of the renminbi that has now started, uh, whether it accelerates from here. And we all know if it accelerates, 
it'll be through the digitalization of the renminbi, right? By being the first major currency to go digital, will the renminbi all of a sudden start being used all around the world? Will mm. the entrepreneur living in Indonesia and getting on a plane to go to Singapore pay for his hotel and his taxi and his restaurant in Singapore through renminbi and Alipay and WePay instead of doing transfers through Swifts? Um, it'll, be, it'll be interesting. I, I think there's a good chance that this happens. At that point, China will be a lot more secure in its future than if it remained dependent on the US dollar. And that security, that added security should help potentially a re-rating of Chinese assets. Which, which sort of takes us a little bit back to the beginning of our conversation and maybe adds another dimension onto the motivations for the different policy stances that the two economies took. Because clearly, if you have the extent of you know, stimulus that we've seen in the US, you look at exactly as you, you talked about the, the pressure that that puts on the exchange rate, the associated demand for non-dollar denominated assets, and you have the Chinese onshore bond market is actually one of the only really properly functioning, you know, fixed income markets globally, you you accelerate that foreign capital uh, demand for, um, uh, for, for renminbi denominated um, uh, assets. So, so that internationalization process uh, almost uh, takes, takes a form of acceleration because of the, the different policy stances that the two economies have taken. Absolutely. Look, I think that we have to acknowledge that today, when all across the Western world, policies makers' main policies is really to say, we're going to destroy our capital. Uh, we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to just at the very least destroy our currency. I mean, you know, when, when central bankers say, look, we're going to keep negative real rates of minus one, minus two, minus three percent, in essence, they're saying we're destroying the value of your capital, right? I mean, that's, that's the main message. You move forward to China, and China today is the only major bond market where the policymakers are saying, look, we're, we're going to preserve the value of your capital. We're going to keep real interest rates positive. Uh, and yes, to your point, this is very much helping the internationalization of the renminbi. Right now, you have between 20 and 35 billion of foreign flows into Chinese government bonds every month from basically peanuts two years ago. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a fairly obvious trade at this point. If you own U.S. treasuries, if you own JGBs, if you own Europe, European government bonds, you're guaranteed losses. Um, and here you are in China, you know, saying, look, we'll, we'll offer you positive real rates on the one hand. And not only that, but if you look at the past year, three years, five years, 10 years, the renminbi outperforms every major currency and Chinese government bonds are the best performing major government bond market. So investors tend to fall, I think, into one of two categories. Uh, you have the momentum guys and you have the, the value guys. Well, the value guys are going to be interested because today, like the only place you can find value in bonds is China. And the momentum guys are going to be interested because Chinese bonds are outperforming everybody. So the flows are coming in and I, I don't really see what's going to stop it except for a change in policy in the Western world. But right now, we really have little signs of that.
Veloslava Dimitrova is a Fidelity Portfolio Manager in London with a focus on the global renewable sector. And she recently caught up with Alice Lee, a Hong Kong-based equity analyst, for a deeper dive on the solar industry. There are many, many decarbonization solutions on the table, fortunately. Um, but one of them, solar, for example, is a very good um, uh, illustration of the codependence of the US and China. Not only are they codependent now, but they need to continue working together and they, can, they need to accelerate the momentum because of the scale of the climate change challenge ahead of us. Can you tell me a bit more about this, Alice? So leverage on its cost advantage, China plays a dominant role in global uh, solar supply chain. In terms of capacity, it accounted for 96% of global wafer supply uh, at the end of 2020 and 70-80% of polysilicon cell and module supply. That said, China is not completely self-sufficient. It still depends on some expertise from the Western countries. Inverter manufacturers in China mainly rely on European supplies in IGBT and semiconductor components. I mean, the implications from decarbonization for investors are huge. This is a significant megatrend ahead of us. Um, if we just look at solar, for example, um, we have spent decades investing in, in renewables. Um, this is not a new technology. Yet solar and wind generated about 10% of global power uh, last year. Uh, yet we need this to be significantly higher if we are to replace thermal generation, coal and gas. On our estimates, we need more than 19 times more renewables than we currently have. This is four times the current rate of installations out to 2050. So there's a long way uh, to go before we reach the carbon neutrality. But it's clear that China and the US share a common interest when uh, it comes to solar. Velislava Dimitrova there speaking with Alice Lee. China is clearly trying to uh, position itself very much at the forefront of the battle against climate change. I come back to this idea of how does it want to be seen in the world. Now, there's, there's obviously very strong incentives for it to do so. You know, the economies with the biggest level of carbon emission, that is partly to do with the role that it has played historically as being the kind of the factory floor of the world. It also has the largest production of renewable technologies. And so, it, it, again, it has this, this incentive to do so. But nonetheless, it really has put itself right at the forefront of climate change, especially at a point in time when I would say the US was not as full-throated in terms of its um, uh, support for climate action. So again, do you see this as also part of you know, another dimension of how China is positioning itself in the world? For sure. Now, you know, I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is that the fight against climate change ticks a lot of the right boxes for the Chinese government. Uh, you know, first of all, here's a problem that needs a government solution. Chinese Communist Party loves that. It's like, oh, you know, this is, we're good. this is what we're good at. This is the one thing where China feels very happy uh, sitting down and, you know, talking with other nations and finding solutions and compromises, partly because this is a global problem, right? It's an opportunity for China to, to show leadership and to show that, uh, you know, they can be a good global actor since, you know, so much of the Western rhetoric around China is that China is a bad actor. Um, here's a chance for them to show they're a good actor. Now, at the same time, 
you know, China has, you know, in the past 20 years invested more than anyone on solar. Um, so if all of a sudden solar becomes the solution, this isn't bad news. All the solar panels are now being exported from China. So you shouldn't be that surprised. You know, show me the incentives. I'll tell you the outcome. If, if the whole world decides to go down the solar path, China will, will not be sad. So, yeah, I would expect, to be honest, I would expect China to continue showing both the will to compromise and a desire to lead on all issues relating to climate change. Excellent. No, I think I think what what I hope this conversation is is demonstrating is that you know China is at that stage where it is playing uh, obviously a more critical role in the world, but in doing so is is if you like trying to uh, position itself in different ways in different contexts. So coming back to the, the the phrase that I use at the start, it is having you know people are both in sort of collaboration. Uh, competition, occasionally in conflict with China, but it is it is a multi-dimensional relationship that the world is having with China and that China is having with the world as we go through this um, pivot towards, I think, a kind of a uh, an Asia-led and China-led um, uh, global growth outlook. Louis, thank you so much indeed for your for your time today. Thank you. I hope we catch up live at some point. Take care. That brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, thank you again to my guest, Louis-Vincent Gav, and to our other contributors, Arthur Krober, Catherine Young, Velislava Dimitrova, and Alice Lee. And thank you for listening. If you want to read more of what's been covered today, please go to our website, fidelityinternational.com. And if you want to listen to more episodes of The Investor's Guide to China, just search for that title in your podcast app. The producers today were Neil Goff, Rory Fong, and Seb Morton-Clark, with production support from Keith Chun, Alex Wilcox, and Madison Fletcher. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.